Lord God, thank you for being with us uh, through this last week. Thank you for watching over us and preserving us. We pray for those we know who are sick. Think about uh, uh, Neil Roberts right now and, and others as well, Matt Wiley and Shawnee, Oklahoma, and, and others. We pray that you would grant them a speedy and happy recovery. We pray that you would be with us as we continue our, our, our series this Sunday morning, this uh, study. We ask you to guide us and that it would encourage us and it would help us that we would be able to pass on um, these things to others as well and that uh, it would even grow our own perspective of meaningfulness of what's going on. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are doing a why do you do that class, okay? And so, uh, like again, if you have questions that you would like me to cover, let me know and I'll see if I can squeeze them in somewhere. Um, so the broad categories we're looking at, uh, worship, church government, complementarianism, who is John Calvin, and catechisms, and church membership. And we're really here right now in the worship broad category. And so the purpose is, remember, is that those who are unfamiliar, that, um, that hopefully they'll see and understand that we really are trying to be very, very, very biblical. And if they walk away saying, wow, these people are faithful to Jesus, committed to scriptures, then I feel like we've succeeded but also that we pass on, that we're able to pass on as disciple-makers, pass on why we do the things we do, drawing from Scripture and so forth. Um, and this is a really huge deal in my mind for us uh, right here. So so this, uh, this is what we're doing under worship. We started with this one up here, and we've been working our way through. This one was added. Somebody brought this up the other day, and then with that came another one that I'll deal with today. But we're going to talk about our liturgy today. Um, and some of you will say, well, I know all this stuff, and that's great. I'm glad you know it all, but it's really worth going back through it. So let me do this. I have copies. We actually made some extras. I have copies of the worship guide. Anybody have, a, have the worship guide? And I'd like you to take it and look it over. So I'm going to give everybody a, a copy. So there you go. Oh, Beverly needs one up here. So I'm going to give you just a minute to look it over because I have some questions for you to, for you to fill in the blanks, so to speak. Okay? And I really think it's worth us on occasion sitting down and going through our worship service periodically because it's amazing how often we can move into autopilot, number one. It's also amazing how we can just make assumptions and the assumptions can be wrong. Okay? And then uh, also uh, looking at it and thinking again, how do we communicate what we're doing, what we do to other people? Okay, so go ahead and look through the worship service. This is, by the way, keep this with you and then take it with you into the sanctuary. This is today's, so you can save the worship guide trees. Sorry. So just look through it there. So here's the first question here. Take a look at the worship guide. So as you look through, what are some questions you have always had about the liturgy? About the way we do it? Yes, ma'am. Ah, yes. Because, so let me, can I give you a history, a history and then I'll give you a, okay. Because historically, Christians always stood through the whole service because when you enter the presence of the king, you always stand for the king. Pews are a Western invention from the 17th century. So if you ever remember the story of John Knox, I don't know if anybody remembers John Knox, part of that history of the Church of Scotland. There's uh, the story of uh, the milkmaid, Jeannie Miles, or whatever her name was, and she came into church. She had to bring her own milking stool to sit on. Right? Because there's no pews. By the way, she took that milking stool and threw it at the priest because what he preached. But anyways, don't throw milking stools at me, please. But anyway, it's interesting that historically, pews are a, kind of a, a modern invention. Um, we stand because where we stand is always, so it's hard to sing while you sit. There's a practicality. It is hard to sing while you sit. But also, we stand at other times. It is a sign of respect. So we stand at scripture reading, things like that. Is that great question? Yes. Yes, sir. 
Amen. It's a great question. It's because we're old. Yeah, 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 yeah. By the way, also in those uh, old churches, you will notice there are there were places for older people and infirm to sit along the sides of the walls. And so that's where we would all be sitting. Okay? Uh, what else? Just think, I may not answer any of them right now. I may wait and answer them as we go along. But any other questions that you've always wanted to ask based upon the way we, the order of worship, the liturgy that we follow? Yeah, why do we kneel? Yeah, that was last two weeks ago. We talked about throwing our bodies into our begging. So very good. But yeah, that's, those are, by the way, those are questions I've actually heard asked when people come in that are visiting. So those are legit, I mean, they're all legit questions, don't get me wrong. But those are ones that you might actually hear somebody asking, and how would you answer them? So, yes? Okay. Yes. Yes. Ah, very good. Great question. Anybody want to answer that? I got an answer. Because we forget. It's a teaching tool. Yes. So those who can't read, little kids to people with macular degeneration, are who or those who are illiterate, they can still participate. So the Lord's prayer is repeated. They can join in. There's a doxology. There's in the evening. There's a Gloria Patri. There, there are places in there so that everybody can participate, right? Because we really believe in the priesthood of believers, and that we're all to be involved in some way. Okay. So the the re- repetitive. I actually wrote an article on this in uh, it's on my blog from years ago. But the repetitiveness is extremely important. Let me tell you a story, a side story about repetitiveness. When we were in Midland, you remember there was a, a fellow whose son visited our church a few times, and he went into the Marines. He always had some problems, some issues, and then he was put in the brig or something while he was in the Marines, right? He told me, um, I was looking at the Jerry and Cindy, sorry. Um, he told me when he got out, he, he appeared to be converted. I don't know what's happened to him since then, but he appeared to be converted when he got out of the Marines. And he told me, he said the thing, he said, he, and he wasn't a member of our church. He had just visited a few times, knew the Waltons and some others. Uh, and he told me, he said, the one thing that came back to him the whole time he was in, in uh, the Marine Brig that actually was, was meaningful to him, he was a Methodist, was the repeated things from his Methodist worship service. The Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. He said, I cannot tell you how often I ended up praying that. And so the value of the memorized stuff takes takes worship out of the sanctuary, out into the street, and out into work. So the value of having memorized and repeated things is extremely wealthy. Does everybody have a copy of the worship guide? I see some people that came in a little bit late. Okay, there's, there's some floating around here somewhere. All right, any other questions? What other questions have you ever had about the liturgy? Yes, sir. Yes to the last, and yes, I'd be glad to talk about it. So look at the end of Luke chapter 24. So first off, so go ahead and go to Luke 24. Remember that in the temple, or in the tabernacle, Aaron the priest, okay, and number six, in fact, let me find number six real quick, and I'll read this to you. You just go to Luke 24, go to the very end of Luke 24. Aaron the priest is commanded to give a benediction at the tabernacle at the end of every service. Okay? And it's the one we use at the end of our service. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And then the Lord says this through Moses. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Alright? So when, when you have a benediction spoken of you, it's the Lord's name being put on you again. Okay, think about your baptism. You're remembering your baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God's promise that He will bless you. So notice what Jesus does and think about what happens at the end of the service as a continuation, an ongoing, continued picture of this. 
at the end of Luke 24, then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. That's what benediction means. He blessed them and while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him, him etc. Think about this. When you see whoever the minister is raising his hands to bless you, it is, it is Jesus himself, not the minister, Jesus Himself putting His hands on you, lifting His hands over you, and continuing that blessing that has never gone away since His ascension. Does that make sense? So that's beautiful. Is there a, bless- is there a benefit? Huge benefit. Okay? If we believe Jesus. So it's a continuation of the ascension uh, and that blessing that comes with it. Very good question. Alright, there are copies of today's worship guide floating around. If you need one, raise your hand. You need one? Ah, I need one over here. Okay. All right, very good. Great questions. So what are some of the peculiar things you have noticed about our order of worship that stick out to you? What are the peculiar things? You can't say Rhodes because I dealt with that last week, so we're not going to talk about Rhodes. Huh? Pesky kneelers. Yes. They are peculiar in a Presbyterian church, but kneeling is not necessarily peculiar. Okay, we dealt with that two weeks ago. We talked about throwing our bodies into our begging and so forth. I'm glad they are padded as well, yes. But I have, yeah. What else? Anything else that stuck out to you about our order of worship? It's always been kind of peculiar. Yes, ma'am. Yes, confession of sin, yes. Yes, I will. Remind me if I don't do it. Remind me before we close to make sure I've done it because I will remember to do that. We want to talk about the order itself in just a minute. What else? What else has stuck out to you? The improving our doctrine using the catechism. Yeah, somebody else asked that the other day. And so we use uh, four catechisms, the Heidelberg, the Shorter, Westminster Shorter, uh, the Children's First Catechism, and then um, the New City Catechism. And as we go through, though, by the way, that takes us through about five-year cycle. So, but, but yeah, that's, yeah, that is peculiar. Yeah. Yes. Hold on. Miss, Mrs. Mr. Durham's going to do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It sticks, doesn't it? Yeah. Ben? Great question. It's a great question, Ben. I'm not going to answer it, but it's a great question. It really is. I mean, good. All right. What else sticks out to you? The song, the Sanctus, holy, holy, holy Lord. I don't remember where, our, I mean, it, it's a conglomeration of Isaiah 6 and Revelation uh, 4. So when the seraphim are, are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, and then uh, the angels in uh, Revelation 4 say the same thing. So it's pulled together, but I don't know, I don't remember, because it was here when I got here, this particular version of the Sanctus, does anybody remember where it came from? I think Mark picked it up from somewhere. But I've seen versions of it before, so this one is actually really, really singable. That, by the way, that, to go something Dana had asked, one of the things that's really important to me is that the songs are almost always able to be sung without accompaniment. Right? I think that's extremely important. There's nothing wrong with the accompaniment, but here's, here's my, it's just my rule of thumb. If I can't sing it when you're in the hospital, it's hard. I, I can't, I can't do it, right? So I think about singing, singing with you when you're in the hospital. If it's something I can sing, that song too, you can sing in the hospital, right? And the, and the doxology and so forth. It's just a little rule of thumb for me. So, yes. Yeah, assurance of pardon, yeah. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah, that's a very good question. So we do that because I break out in hives when I hear the really strong, rigid law versus gospel and going along with the confession that the two are bundled together throughout Scripture. So in New Testament and Old Testament, you have both law and gospel. And so part of it is just for that very reason to remind us that law and gospel work together, sweetly comport with one another, as the confession says, in even the New Testament. So that's why we often throw those. We do it that way very often. But we do still do the Ten Commandments like on Good Friday. Hold on a second. We do do the Ten Commandments on Good Friday, and we'll do them on occasion here. But great question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, okay, so we're going to get into it in just a minute, okay? So good question. Great. All right, so you ready to move on? These are great questions. If there's others, let me know, okay? Um, who is that guy? That was from the Christmas Eve service. By the way, there are these in the, in the pews. They are wonderful fans, but they also... Uh, elements in our worship service and go through and, and uh, Pastor West in the session worked on these together uh, about two years ago and these are really, really helpful. They're there so that way if you have someone sitting next to you who has questions, you can pull them out or point them to them. You could even read them on occasion just to kind of refresh your memory. I, I want to remind you that these are there and they're not just fans, so they make wonderful fans. I see you using them, so I know that that's the case. So anyways, those are there. So, yeah, thanks. Good. Yeah, so this, go, kinda, this is going to kind of go along with something David was asking a minute ago. So to begin with, our initial working format are the five. You may remember the series we did in October on the five, right? So sola scriptura. Sola gratia, solus Christus, soli fide, uh, soli fide, soli deo gloria, sola fide, soli deo gloria. I get my solas and solis mixed up, sorry. All right, that's our working format, one of our working formats through this worship service, the way it's set up. So here's what I'm going to ask you a question. This means that our order of worship is intentionally reflecting most or all of these on any given Sunday. So there's the first part of the answer, David, to your question, right? So, it's intentionally, this is not by accident, intentionally reflecting most or all of the five solas on any given Sunday. So I want you to look at the worship service and do you see any or all of these reflected in today's service? Look at, your, look at the copy of the worship service. Yeah, so you got call to worship, so you got, I mean, you're starting with the sola, sola scriptura, right? And, and also the centrality of preaching, Yeah, Soli Deo Gloria, the doxology. Do you hear anything about Sola Gratia and Sola Fide? It's your turn, your turn. Here's your chance to shine. Yes, the assurance of pardon. I love doing the assurance of pardon because I want you to notice that even if I give you the most legalistic sermon you've ever heard in all your life, the gospel has already been proclaimed in our service at the very beginning, and then we come to communion at the end, I get to do it again, okay? So if I mess up and it's all law and there's no grace in the sermon, it's all bookmarked with the gospel. Very good. What else? Where else do you see any of these? Sola, uh, sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Solus Christus, Sola Fide, Soli Deo Gloria. Yes, Solus Christus, communion. Yes, the assurance of pardon, promise of God's grace. Yes, yeah, our confession of faith. I mean, today we're doing Galatians 2, you know, I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me in the life, and I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I just want you to see that the five, the five, are intentionally part of the structure of our worship service. So if anybody ever asks, that's... In fact, it's great that on our worship guide, used to be, let's see if it's in here anymore. 
Yeah. So on the inside, you've got the, the little terracotta or whatever that thing is right there at the top. You know, you'll see four of them actually mentioned. Scriptura, Fide, Cristo, Gracia, 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 whatever. I don't speak foreign languages very well, but... Right? And it's just to remind us. I mean, it's, I'm glad it's there. It reminds us this whole service is often very much shaped by the five. Okay? So as you think about our worship service, I want you to see, oh, this was intentional. We've intentionally got this the way it is. Does that make sense? Any questions on this before we move on? Was that something new to you? Great. Okay. You need more coffee? you to notice also the Westminster Shorter Catechism as it notes that the means or the channels of grace by which Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. I want you to think about that because it's a huge part of what we do. So look at Acts chapter 2, for example, just as a biblical background here. Here's the church at, at Pentecost, or right after the Pentecost sermon has been preached, 3,000 been baptized. And notice the characterization of their fellowship. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves. They didn't just go along coasting. They devoted themselves to the Word, the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, their sacraments, and then prayers. Okay, And so that Westminster Shorter Catechism answer also fits into and is part of intentionally part of what we're doing in our service do you happen to see this pattern in our service word sacraments and prayer and notice that all three are spoken as a means of grace okay so let me just move a little bit to this to the right over here real quick so notice it's not word it's word sacraments and prayer and so there's got to be some kind of a little bit of a balance in word sacraments and prayer i have i preached at a church years and years ago when i was in seminary that the sacraments were not uh, weren't there they only took the lord's supper once a quarter whatever but you didn't see you saw signs but you didn't have the sacrament prayer was all of about three minutes right plus two hymns and then the lord's prayer and then I got to preach for an hour. That's what I was told. You will be preaching for an hour. I mean, it was an overbalanced emphasis on word. Okay? But noticing that word, sacraments, and prayer, all three, you have to kind of balance that. So look at our worship service and tell me, does it look like it's kind of balancing the way it's set up? Think about how many times we pray. If you remember, hymns are prayers. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then the sermon takes on forever. And you get that long-winded preacher who just can't stop. And, and then the Lord's Supper. No rushing through it. It's, it has its part, right? I just want you to see that, that order, that pattern. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, as we talked about when we were looking at the uh, the sacraments or the regulative principle, when there are some things that are just not commanded in reference to the frequency, for example, right? And there are reasons for that. And so, but the fact that you do it is important. So, yeah, I got it. I got it. I'm in there with you. So when we get to communion in a few weeks, we'll talk about that more. So good. Great. 
So any 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 comments or anything about the word sacraments of prayer part or anything else? Yeah, yeah. Yes, all that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. In fact, uh, yeah, so you won't see, uh, for example, you won't see, a, I, I saw a church do this one time. You won't see a PCA church saying, well, we're going to have worship watching the Passion of the Christ, so let's all go to the movie. Okay, you won't have that. I mean, if you do, it'll be a really odd deal. I'm sorry? I'm, I dance all the time. What are you talking about? I can't stand still. All right. This was a Christmas Eve service we did a long time ago. So following the model of many of the Psalms, thinking about the Psalms and other scripture, we see that, there, that worship is also a dialogue. Think about the Psalms. There's this, often this dialogue between the writer of the Psalm and God's response, okay, and other places. So we're, we're a dialogue. Our, our worship service is set up also as a dialogue, okay? So think about the order of worship and the dialogical dialogical aspect of it. So we're invited by God to worship. We don't come in on our own steam. God opens it up and says, come and worship, okay? And that's the call to worship, for example. And then we respond in praise and prayer. He speaks, scripture reading, we reply, etc. So keep that dialogical aspect in mind as well as you think about our worship service, that we really are in conversation and communion with the Lord. That's part of the intention. So I've already given this one away. So do you see this pattern in our order of worship as well? Thank you. No. Yeah, it may have been at one point. It is in the evening. At least one hymn will be from straight out of the Psalms uh, or, or the metrical version of the Psalms. Um, usually, usually, I try to do the first hymn is more of a broad entering into worship hymn. And sometimes it is a psalm, sometimes it's not. I can't remember. Um, yeah, the ends of all the earth shall hear. That's which is from Psalm 22, I think. Yeah. So, but it'll happen a lot. But yes, I would love to actually incorporate in the morning uh, responsive psalm reading. We do that Sunday evenings, but I would love to incorporate that at some point. But we'll see how that goes because I preach too long anyway. So. So what else? What other aspect or how else do you see the pattern work out in our worship service? The dialogue. You don't see it. Or you do, and you're like, let's move on. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, the assurance of pardon. Uh, by the way, we intentionally, this is a John Calvin moment, we intentionally keep the sursum corda in the, ser- the service, right? So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. John Calvin in chapter in book four of his institute said, whatever we do, we need to keep that ancient tradition from the church in there because that's what worship is. We're not drawing God down to us. We're being drawn up to God, to Christ in worship. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. And so that sursum corda is actually very, very important. Uh, that's the Latin phrase for it, okay? And so it's intentional. In Midland, I used to actually take uh, John Calvin's prayer and use it for the Sursum Corda. My heart I offer to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. It's really a very effective approach in that say, but it's the same aspect. Okay, good. Ready to move on? Man, we were ready to move on five minutes ago. Okay. Um, let's talk then. Um, so anything else about the liturgy itself? We're going to talk about the pyramids, the colors in just a second. Anything else about the liturgy, the way it works out? Any other questions? Did I answer your question? The confession of sin. Yes, very good. Yes, yes. So we put it, it's at the beginning um, because as we come in, we hear God inviting us like Isaiah 6. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. 
he hears the praise, holy, 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 and he immediately knows what? What, is, what does Isaiah know? That he's a sinful man. What does it mean? I'm a man coming apart at the seams. Right? I have sinful lips and live amongst people with sinful lips. And so then he receives absolution, right? And then he gets his commission. It's a very similar pattern. Early in the service, we have our confession of sin and the assurance of pardon so that as we go on through the service, right? It's like Isaiah 6. We realize, okay, we actually can be here. Does that make sense? Yes. And I don't know about you, but some of us need confession of sin more often than once a, once a week. So, right? But it's, I think it's a valuable part in our service. So. Anybody else before we move on? Yes. Communion? You did? Yeah, we move the Lord's Prayer. We move baptism to after the sermon. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, that's a great... So that's a great... But that's a great, that's a great point, because sometimes you will go to churches. I actually had this discussion with a guy who's no longer... Well, I won't say it. Anyways, he was wanting to do communion earlier in the service for various reasons, and I was like, whoa, dude. You know, this, we're Calvinists. We're Protestants. We believe in word and sacrament. There's a priority to word. Okay? And so then you have the sacrament. That's, by the way, why we moved baptism to after the sermon. All of that stuff after the sermon is a response to the word proclaimed. Right? Word and sacrament. I know squirmy babies can be annoying and you want to get them baptized and out to the nursery, but it's where it belongs. It's very, very fitting. And then our confession of faith. We moved our confession of faith to after the sermon because it's a response of faith to the word proclaimed. Right? So there's lots of stuff that got moved there because that's where it's most fitting as a response to the word preached, okay? It kind of goes along with, yeah. But Because I, I have seen churches that did communion earlier in the service. I just don't remember us doing it. So. Anybody else in the liturgy? Okay, so let's talk about the pyramids, the colors, the cool colors, the banners in front of the pulpit and on the baptismal font and then the lectern and then um, the, it goes along with the stole. The stole goes along with them. So what are the pyramids? Uh, they're reflecting something. What are the pyramids indicating? Yes, what? The church calendar, the time, right? Time. It's, key. it's how we're telling time. Let me say that again. It's how we are telling time. I think that's important to remember. So think about your house. I don't know about everybody else's, but, but Anna likes to do this, and I know some of you do this as well. Think about your house that you tell times Right, you tell time in your house. Uh, how do you tell time in your house of the seasons? Change the door decoration. Right? All these reds and yellows and oranges show up around the fall, right? And all these greens and yellows or whatever else show up around spring, right? That is if you, if you have the presence of mind to do all that stuff. You may not have the presence, that's okay. But a lot of people do tell time of the seasons in their home and it's color, and it's changes, right? And it's very fitting. In America, we tell time as Americans in a different way. How do we tell time in America? Yeah, besides clocks. It was funny, we had a seminarian from Africa who one time rebuked us, rebuked me and us, and says, quit worshiping that God on your wrist. We actually had wristwatches on in that time, right? Because it's, we were always about time, and he was like, dude, Everywhere else in the world is not worried about time like you are. So, hold on a minute. Huh? Sports? Oh, yes, yes. We tell time by sports. Yes, it's football season. Oh, football season's over. Yeah, yeah right. So, oh, good job. That's right, yeah. So, how else do we tell time in America? Think about, Ben. Yes, the brightness outside. But how, I mean, think about it as a nation. How do we do it? Mary? Yeah, well, we do it with school term. Often, huh? 
holidays, but most of our holidays, what's the big complaint you have about holidays when it comes? It's commercialized, and you know that because Valentine's stuff shows up December the 3rd. What? You know, right? So they're, they're moving, and it's been market, marketed, right? So it's, it's a commercialized. So we tell, often tell times in the U.S., I mean, think about Black Friday, think about the color here, Black Friday, we have Cyber Monday, and so forth. We tell time in our country very often through the commercial as well as our national story. So President's Day, um, First Nations, Columbus Day, whatever they call that now, July the 4th. So we tell time with those things, and usually there's colors that come with them. Does that make sense? Nothing wrong with all of that, but that's how we do it. So we have made a conscious decision to tell time at Heritage by the gospel. Let the gospel be the timekeeper for us. Okay? And that's what the colors are all, all the colors actually wrap up around the gospel, some part of the gospel story, year after year. Talking about repeats. Okay? And um, so uh, right now we've got green because we're in Epiphany. The wise men have come and seen Jesus and, and all of that, and we're getting ready for. Um, what's coming? You see, Ascension's coming, uh, Pentecost, is co- Easter's coming, right? A Good Friday, Easter, Lent, all that stuff. Yeah, I'm sorry? Yeah, I, I'd have to take some time to do that. I don't pay attention to colors very often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're, yeah, so we're actually following a Vanderbilt calendar of colors, and we're doing the Presbyterian one. Yeah, which she does, she changes the colors. David? Yeah. Repent the fans? Oh, and then just change them out every time we change the colors? Oh, the colors. Yeah, yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you have a colorful fan, too. No, that's right. No, it's good. It's good. Yeah, green is ordinary time, and it's epiphany. So right now we're kind of in an ordinary season, um, but then white is, has to do with both uh, the innocence and, and uh, of Christ and also his rulership. It has to do with him being crowned as king, things like that. You've got red for blood or, or royalty as well. Purple will show up, okay, and black, of course, for Good Friday. But anyways, all those are just simply for us to visually tell time and realize we're telling, we're telling time, we're telling the time of the year with a gospel structure, okay? It's, none of this, by the way, this is not necessary. Something that Dee said the other day. This is not necessary. This is what we do for those very, very reasons. If a church doesn't do it, God bless them. When we were in Midland, we didn't do it in Midland. You know, and it, didn't, it doesn't impact. It's just, it, but it does, I just want you to remember that as we do this, the intention behind it is to tell time being structured by the gospel. Does that make sense? That's exciting. I can tell that you are enthused. So, is that biblical, might someone ask? Well, let's go two places very quickly. It's not mandatory. And for whatever else Paul says about times and seasons, I want you to notice that Paul actually told time and kept time by... um, mildly in this way. So in Acts chapter 20, verse 16. Somebody read Acts 20, 16. Acts 20, 16. David. I mean, I realize that's a Jewish celebration, but he is telling time by a season, Okay. And so you see at the end of 1 Corinthians, go to 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 8. And I'll read it. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there were, are many adversaries. It's not a huge deal, but it is interesting that, um, that he does tell time by the biblical story. He still follows that pattern and there's nothing wrong with it. That's my point. Nothing wrong with it. It's not mandatory. It's one of that part of that authorized permission we talked about on the very first day of the class. Okay? Does that make sense? 
Yes. They're all methods of communication. Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. All right. So any questions up to this point? Anything else you want to ask? Because we're done. Yes. The elders? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the only time I will make announcements, is, and I am squirming, that is a given. Never, never forget that. Yes. So the only time I will actually make an announcement behind the pulpit that I can think of is because our bylaws as a church say that there are certain announcements I have to make from the pulpit. And so I will do that for that reason. But I try not to do that. I, I try to move away from the pulpit because when I'm not preaching the gospel. I'm just making announcements. Okay? The lectern is just easy... For, uh, for the men that are helping so that we were not tripping, up, tripping over each other's feet for the, the elders that are helping that they read from one side and lead from one side and so forth. Okay? Some of it's practicalities. Yeah, yeah. Which is, by the way, is in a Reformed tradition having that split pulpit and lectern. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it does. Very good, David. Yeah, yeah. There's a book put out back in the 1960s. Um, it was an Erdman's Press book. Um, uh, had to do with Christian Reformed architecture that we are actually, forms of communication, we're proclaiming our theology by our architecture. Right? That's a huge recognition. So that's why you don't have, we don't have a metal building that looks like it's going to go away in six weeks and so forth. Right? Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying... You proclaim your, archi- your theology through your architecture. And so the way the sanctuary is set up, I mean, it's not huge, ginormous, but it is intentional. So word and sacraments are up at front, and you'll notice that visually, what do you notice visually? When you think about the baptismal font, which I usually bring out to the front when we have a baptismal, what do you notice about the baptismal font, the communion table, and the pulpit and the lectern where scripture is read, etc.? What do you notice? Well, yeah, one's bigger than the other. It's just because of my ego, but that's for something. It is elevated. Some of that's practicality, so it's easier to speak big crowd. But what do you notice visually as you think about visually? Yeah, they all have the same banner. But notice they're all together. Right? I mean, that sounds silly, but they're all together. When That's an important aspect, right? We put them together. It would be fitting, it would be just as fitting to have the baptismal font and the table up between the pulpit and lectern as where it's at. It doesn't, I mean, you're communicating the same thing, word and sacraments going together. Okay? And so, um, yes? It could be, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's very fitting. And so, and, and it's a table for dinner, right? For supper, and so that's good. And I'll put the baptismal font out in front of the, bad, the communion table. Why would I put the baptismal font out in front of the communion table? The way to the, the covenant meal is through the covenant sign of membership, right? If I had my druthers, if we were all remodeling the sanctuary, there'd be a permanent baptismal font out in front there in front of the communion table so that you always remember that, that we had to come, we have to come through the waters to come to the feast. You have to go through the Red Sea before you can have you know, the covenant meal. You have to go through circumcision and so forth. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Right, right. Right, right. And there's a whole history behind putting that baptismal font in the narthex, you know, out there and and um, but yeah, it is interesting. But uh, most most time, Protestant churches and Reformed churches, especially, bring the baptismal font up to the front, and 
uh, in, in uh, Danish or Germanic Reformed churches, it's often in front or equal on the same footing as the communion table. Visually, you'll see it together. Okay? I mean, that's my that's been my experience. Is anything that looks you know Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, but then they turn around and do some of the very same things. And so yeah, I mean that's just been my experience. The cross shape. Yeah, but we have. Yeah, yeah. But we do have Presbyterian churches that do do that, but that have that. First Pres in, in Jackson, Mississippi kind of does that, has this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Please. And I think that's, yeah, I, that's, that's, that's historically right. Yeah, so if you go, if you ever go to um, Virginia, um, if you go into any of the old historic Episcopal churches and early, uh, early, um, early American churches, right, that are usually uh, Puritan-informed churches, what you notice is you notice a two-tier or a three-tier pulpit. So the bottom tier is where all the announcements are made. The second tier is where the deacon read scripture but then when the priest comes to preach or a preacher comes to preach he mounts all the way to the top right so that sets visually sets that apart and this the split lecture pulpit comes from that tradition where you have that very kind of thing going on yeah what else Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I got my doctorate at Episcopal Seminary, and they used to argue about that all the time. And I was like, I'm a Presbyterian; I don't care. <laughs> so, yeah, there is history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Anybody else? Yes, David. Yeah, yeah. So, so it actually has a very pragmatic uh, purpose. It's a sound. It's a sounding. Uh, what do they call that? But it's a sound thing. So your molecules as you're talking bounce against them. We'll think about churches with no sound system that have lots of echoes. It focuses the projection, and then it became, as a pragmatic thing, then it became the sign that the preacher is preaching, right? So something very similar in forms of communication. But that's, that's a historical pragmatic aspect. So they began to realize they need to put something up to focus the preaching. The, the verb, the verb, the, yeah, no, some would, but. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, a lot of practicalities in some of those things that turn into necessities in some people's minds. Yes?
Yeah, yeah. It is tragic. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, Henry Ford said history is bunk, and that's been the American mantra since long before Henry Ford. And, uh, but we do... It's a grief, and, one of the, and I mentioned this before, you know, walking to a place where there's supposed to be worship going on, and they intentionally remove all symbols of Christianity, of, that this is a place of word and sacraments, is a, is a form of communication in itself, to use these st- statements. And that, to me, is bothersome, right? So, yeah. Yeah. And I just, I just, I'm just like, you know, we need to have, we need to show that this is not a Tupperware sales meeting, right? We need to show that this is a Christian. Yeah. So, and I love the fact, by the way, if you notice in our sanctuary, if you walk in, you'll notice two quilts. I don't remember all the history behind them, but those are even, those two quilts on the side are, um, use ancient Christian symbols for the Trinity and so forth and their Alpha and the Omega. I mean, it's just, it's not in your face like we're, we're Christians and we don't want you in here. It's like, we're Christians and this is a Christian worship service. Praise the Lord. You know, come, but we're not changing to make, just, just to make you feel like you've, you know, you're, you're completely 100%, 100,000% comfortable, right? So it's intentional. So I appreciate the fact that all that's in there. So anyways, you guys done? Are we ready? All right, so next week, bum, 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 the most non-controversial subject ever in all of human history, we're going to talk about baptism and why we pesky Presbyterians do it the way we do. That'll be next week, and um, I'm allowed two Sundays for us to do it, but if we knock it out next Sunday alone, then that's great, and then we'll move into communion after that. But next week is baptism. So, all right. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for the discussion and the time together and just thinking about it. the serious business of the lighter goss, of the work of the people coming in as priests, made priests by our Lord Jesus Christ, cloaked in the vestments of Christ's own righteousness, to come in, to worship and adore you, the great King of the universe, to worship you, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that this class and, um, will fill up more of the, the, what we are doing and why we are doing it. And that we will relish worship. Worship that is truly shaped by word and sacraments and prayer. Worship that is guided by um, sola, sola scriptura, solus Christus, sola gratia, sola fide, soli deo gloria. And that, Lord, um, it would impact who we are and the way that we live. Fill us now with your Holy Spirit as we gather into the great assembly. In Jesus' name, amen.